Hello, everyone, and you're listening to a special episode of GradCast. GradCast is the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Tanya, and I will be joined by my co-host, Roger. Hi there. And today's episode, like I said, it's a special one. We are going to have three guests joining us from the Faculty of Music. And our first guest is here. Her name is Natalia. She's in her third year of her PhD in performance. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, so we're going to get right into it. You are a wonderful piano player. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear that. <laughs> so maybe tell us a little bit about your research. Well, I'm doing my doctorate program in uh, solo piano here at Weston, and um, I'm on my fourth year. And uh, the topic of my research is uh, musical ekphrasis, uh, which is the category of um, uh, musical compositions uh, that uh, were inspired by uh, works created in other artistic music, uh, sorry, other artistic uh, mediums such as um, paintings, uh, sculpture, or architectural sites, etc. And the work uh, in particular which I deal with uh, is Piano Psycho by contemporary Russian composer Alexei Hevelev. Uh, it's called Chagall Vitho, and it was inspired by uh, stained glass uh, windows, Jerusalem windows by Marc Chagall. study that? What, what got you interested in Alexei's work and the relationship with the stained glass windows? Well, initially I was interested in uh, doing uh, something related to multimedia concert format, because uh, that's something which um, interests me, because I had I have I had a bad experience with multimedia concert myself when I um, attended a concert performance of the opera, uh, which meant that there were no uh, staging, no costume designs. Uh, it was accompanied uh, by orchestra and uh, singers were in usual concert attire, but it was accompanied by uh, video footage. Uh, commissioned specifically for that production and um, it was uh, beautiful in a way uh, but um, in my opinion it didn't fit to that music and I had a uh, quite unpleasant um, cultural experience with that so I, I hmm. wanted to research uh, the issue of multimedia concerts because it, it's very popular these days so I was looking for some musical work which could be performed as a multi in, in a format of multimedia concert uh, and uh, I also was interested in uh, researching something, um, some works created by contemporary Russian composers because that's mm. my heritage. Mm. So I found this work and it uh, seemed very fit to all the topics which I was...
Could you maybe elaborate on what it means to be a multimedia concert? Yes, sure. Multimedia concert is a very popular concert format, th- uh, format these days, and uh, it's uh, just a usual live uh, music event uh, where performers, um, musicians perform classical repertoire and traditional instruments, accompanied by projections of images, uh, video, or any other form of visual media. Um, and um, it attracts new audiences, and um, um, that's why it's, it's becoming more popular these days. But it has its drawbacks, too, um, because of what I mentioned. Uh, some people, they just like to concentrate on music only. Mm. And when they see this conflict in visual uh, media, the visual dominance, it's so uh, apparent that uh, you just can't uh, comprehend what's going on, and it's not very pleasant you can't really focus on the music and yes th- exactly I, I would assume at least that that was initially the point of having you know videos or lights or you know all these kinds of you know funky kinds of shows at concerts and things like that is to enhance the experience enhance the music yes exactly yeah that's why i decided for uh, my lecture recital which i'm doing um, during this conference uh, i decided to, to use this concert format and perform um, this particular music uh, this piano cycle i was talking about earlier alongside the windows uh, referential source as a uh, multimedia concert format to show that there are certain types of music there's certain musical compositions that do not lend themselves to be performed alongside the video but uh, there are this um, particular musical works which were inspired by the works created in other artistic mediums mm. which actually it, it makes total sense to do them and perform them alongside the uh, inspirational impulses for those works to have a personal relationship with this composer mm-hmm. and um, he himself acknowledges that uh, while he didn't plan uh, for his music to be performed alongside the windows um, uh, he agrees that um, his music might help in understanding uh, Chagall's idea mm-hmm. and that's um, our you know that's what we uh, as performers strive for um, I believe that um, we are there in the service of music, in the service of composer's idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, while it's still important to popularize academic music um, w- with this concert format, multimedia concert format, uh, we can't uh, ruin or even overshadow composer's idea by this conflict in visual uh, information. So how do you kind of find that balance um, where the music complements the art, you know, so or, or vice versa? So you want to make sure that the music is related to the art or like you said better explains the stained glass windows but then how do you make sure the stained glass windows don't overtake the music well in uh, that's a core of my research uh, i analyze several works um, several movements from this piano cycle using the models of image music interrelationships developed in multimedia studies to demonstrate that uh, there are uh, shared attributes between um, visual information and music and um, uh, for a performer or director of the show of possible musical concert uh, has to have some criteria in choosing the visual uh, media to know that 
you can't just put um, music from 19th century with uh, alongside 19th century painting and justify it mm-hmm. because you know it's from the same century, century so it, it works you can't do that you have to think about um, audience and different uh, background of people in the audience and uh, that's where the concept of inclusivity comes uh, to mind uh, which is very dear to my heart mm-hmm. being relegated from another country I know that it's um, it might be quite difficult to uh, overcome certain cultural barriers mm-hmm. and uh, when you hear something um, or see which you don't quite understand it's very difficult to question or uh, criticize the source of information so uh, you end up questioning your own intelligence or uh, knowledge which is not quite pleasant feeling not certainly not the one you want to have during the musical concert mm-hmm. so um, yes it's, it's a very um, important issue to put music and visual media um, and to analyze it appropriately and know that they fit, not just for you, for your subjective point of view, but for people with different background. tends to, especially as art lives on throughout time, uh, get away from the artist's initial conception or view of, of, of what it should be. Is it overbearing, in a sense, to tell people that, or from a certain perspective, that uh, you shouldn't be combining two things uh, from you know different time eras or from the same time era, for, for instance? Or is there a certain structure that needs to be followed when combining these t- uh, different multimedias? Well, uh, there are no criteria in choosing, um, in case of multimedia concert, there are no criteria in choosing visual media. Um, so it's uh, completely up to a director or performer mm-hmm. what video footage or visual media they decide to include as part of their um, performance. Um, and I believe that it's it's important to you know, create something new, to be innovative, uh, to generate new ideas. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, one should still be aware of um, the initial idea for the musical work. You know, in case of my work, uh, there's a certain uh, um, inspiration in another artwork, and composer himself approves of that. Uh, of course, mm. you can't ask, you know, Beethoven <laughs> if he, he would <laughs> yeah. would have liked um, his work being accompanied by some visual footage. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's it's very important to be innovative, uh, but not for the sake of uh, musical idea. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you'll be performing tomorrow. So this is uh, part of a conference that's happening here at Western. How do you prepare for this performance? Because you have, of course, the piece that you're playing, but then the visual aids uh, like as a slideshow behind you. So how do you prepare for that? 
Well, this year our um, faculty decided to include this uh, lecture recital format in our uh, annual conference. Uh, so my performance will be first uh, in this year, and I thought it would be a great opportunity for me to um, to share my research, and as well as having my last performance milestone done. Uh, so it's a one-hour uh, presentation. Mm. I will have a twenty uh, twenty-five minute um, long uh, lecture. Uh, so it's it's a usual conference paper, uh, which would talk about the issue um, of musical ekphrasis, uh, which would discuss my topic, and uh, after that I will uh, perform this work. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, yes, you're right; it would be accompanied by projections of those um, stained glass windows by Chagall. Um, and after that, I will, you know, have questions, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Wonderful. Can yeah. you maybe tell us just uh, really quickly what this conference in general is about for all of our listeners? Sure, it's our uh, annual uh, symposium in music, and uh, uh, this year it's our 19th. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are uh, many students um, present their papers from across um, North America, uh, and um, the topics are very um, diverse. We have people discussing feminist perspective as, as well uh, in music, as well as uh, people going really deep into theory and analysis. Uh, there is also a paper uh, which um, deals with, um, you know, racial issues which are uh, prevalent now in the um, U.S. So uh, topics are very diverse. That's amazing. Well, we wish you best of luck with your performance Thank tomorrow. You. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Natalia. Our next guest joining us is Sonia. She's in her third year of her doctoral studies in musicology, uh, doing a bit of music history. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's just get right into it. What instrument do you play? I play the harpsichord. And that's not the harp. <laughs> it's not the harp, no. But it is the... It's actually the... It's a keyboard instrument, which is earlier than the piano. So I guess we would say that it's more of the original piano before it became what we currently know today. Uh. Um, I guess the most um, recent example I can give is from the new Beauty and the Beast movie. The talking keyboard instrument in there is actually a harpsichord, not a super fancy piano. <laughs> awesome. 
And just out of curiosity, how did you get into this instrument? Um, actually, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mom was really into classical music, so she bought me a whole bunch of um, VHS tapes on the composers. They had a whole series for kids. So um, she got me videos on like Beethoven and Bach, all these composers. And the one that I liked the most was on Bach, and he played the harpsichord in this oh, video. So cool. And I was like, oh my God, that's my instrument. And my yeah. mom was like, oh, I don't know where to get that <laughs> instrument for you. So um, I learned piano for a while, and then I eventually transitioned over to the harpsichord. So how does your research tie into your playing of the harpsichord? Um, my playing doesn't necessarily tie directly into what I'm doing for my dissertation research. Okay. Um, but uh, the composer that I'm focusing on, um, you know, primarily in my research, um, did write a lot of harpsichord pieces that mm -hmm. I love and that I like to play outside of my musicological studies. A nice personal connection there. Yeah. yeah, so there is a personal connection and... I just, I just really love his harpsichord music, yeah. <laughs> so we'll fast forward from when you first got into this instrument to now. Tell us a little bit about what you're researching. Um, essentially, I'm focusing on um, French music of the 18th century, which we would call um, French Baroque music. And what I'm looking at is foreign representations of um, cultures outside of France, um, outside of Europe in general, actually, within operatic works of this particular composer. At this particular time in the 18th century, um, a lot of French composers were exploring foreign cultures and incorporating them into their operatic stories. So um, when we look at these stories from a modern perspective, um, sometimes they can be interpreted as um, hegemonic or um, from an imperialist perspective, saying that Europeans were looking at these cultures and looking down on them and saying that, oh, um, you know, these cultures are inferior to Europe. And that tends to be um, the general outlook from a 21st or 20th century perspective. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to do is look at these operas from the 18th century from the perspective of 18th century mindset or philosophy, which was preva prevalent at that time, um, which would be enlightenment philosophy of uh, philosophers like Voltaire, um, Rousseau. And these um, philosophers were actually in contact with that particular composer that I liked, whose name was Jean-Philippe Rameau. And what I'm looking at is the influence of these particular philosophers on his exotically themed works. So mm -hmm. these philosophers were really into a concept called cosmopolitanism, which looked to foreign cultures for inspiration um, in terms of morality. At this particular time in the 18th century, France was experiencing a lot of corruption politically, um, which led to the French Revolution eventually. So these philosophers were looking to cultures outside of France, um, in the New World, uh, the Americas, um, to what was considered the Orient back then for like a moral paradigm and saying uh, these cultures are have a visceral connection to nature, especially the indigenous peoples of the New World, and they must embody these types of qualities like um, love and 
um, you know, justice, all of this type of thing. Of course, a lot of these philosophers didn't have a firsthand account of these Mm -hmm. cultures, but they had this idea that because they were so connected to nature that they must be inherently good. So we see this theme of a literary character called the noble savage arrives in a lot of these literary works by these philosophers where we have a character who is from outside of Europe, from Canada or, you know, um, America, featured in stories um, based in the 18th century in some type of European context. So, for instance, in one of Voltaire's work called L'Ingenue, it's based on a man from the Huron tribe who comes to France for the first time. Mm. And he's basically making a critique on French society, saying, like, why do they do these certain things? This doesn't make sense, or this is really morally unjust. And so that's an example of how 18th century France would use elder cultures to make a critique on themselves. And this translated into um, the music of Jean-Philippe Rameau in his operas. He liked to imitate these type of philosophical paradigms in his work. know if this music was accepted at the time if it's a critique of the people in France it was it appreciated or is it uh, how do they look at it because it's essentially for example with the example that you gave with the indigenous uh, individual coming to Europe and then critiquing the culture there did they like to be critiqued Um, I wouldn't say necessarily. It depends on the social group that you're looking at. If we're looking at the philosophical group in France, then that was their purpose. They wanted to make a social critique. They weren't happy with what was happening in the upper echelons of French society, the aristocracy. Mm. The aristocracy would have a different take on this and say, (laughs) there's nothing wrong (laughs) with the way we are. The poor should stay poor and we should stay up here. So Mm. it really depends on what area of society you're looking at there. So did the message, uh, was was the message more subtle? Did, did it go over the heads of many of the people in France or were a lot of the people kind of right for the picking and they were really into that kind of message and in um, line with the French le- revolution? Well, and all actually, um, a lot of the um, philosophical concepts uh, proposed by these philosophers were really controversial and mm. um, France had censorship laws back then, too. Wow. So uh, philosophers like Voltaire were actually imprisoned for a while for really? some of their views, not specifically related to this, but just in general, um, they're contesting the the norms of French society mm-hmm. and the aristocracy at this time did, um, you know, land them in hot water at times. <laughs> Yeah. 
So I'm curious, um, your work, when you look at history and you're analyzing music uh, from a historical perspective, how can you maybe potentially apply that to now? What can we learn from kind of what you're finding from music back then that I would say is progressive for the time? um, And how could we learn from it now? I think what we can learn from when we're looking at um, music back then is that Um, especially what's going on in the world today, um, especially, you know, in the United States and stuff with some prejudices arising arising against uh, different cultures. I think that what we need to do is, you know, not necessarily take that as an example in the 18th century. Of course, they had their vices too back then, but potentially looking at to other cultures for a source of inspiration Mm -hmm. or morality. And I think that's something that we can take away from in a modern context today and looking at different art and saying that we can learn something from this and apply it to our own lives and maybe doing a self-critique on our own culture. Right, right. That's kind of what I was thinking of, you know, we could learn the idea of self-critique, that trying to look at things from the other, whether it's the other racial perspective or cultural perspective, um, which is really interesting to see that it came, that you can learn that from music from the 18th century. Yeah, it is surprising, actually. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I think would come to the forefront of your mind when you think of music from this particular Mm -hmm. period. But yeah, it is a little niche that that did exist. Right, right. You used the word enlightenment philosophy earlier. I was wondering if you could elaborate on what that means. Yeah, so it's basically um, the philosophy of the time of the mid 18th century, mostly was when it was at its height. And um, it's basically the philosophy of those particular philosophers I mentioned, like Voltaire, Rousseau, who were trying to reform France and who were trying to um, basically end the injustice that was going on in the aristocracy at that time. So you're also here um, attending the conference that's happening at Western. Yeah. So what what do you, um, I guess, are you presenting as a part of uh, some of the work that you do here at Western? Yeah, I actually presented earlier today. How did that go? I think it went pretty well. Yeah. It didn't have any bad comments, so yeah. <laughs> I think it was okay. And so you're in um, uh, history, so musical history. So yeah. in terms of... Um, What's, I guess, when you're doing your presentations, is it similar to a lecture-based presentation? Yeah, I would say it's um, pretty similar. Um, You know, you use a PowerPoint presentation to kind of deliver um, point form of what you're talking about so the audience can follow along a little easier mm-hmm. and also um, we generally use a script so we so it's not off the top of our heads and so we can sound as good as possible mm-hmm. so um, yeah it is basically like delivering a lecture and then afterwards there's a question period mm-hmm. um, since it is a musical topic and a musical conference um, most of us incorporate musical examples into our presentation so um, some of us would have actual performances where we play as a part mm-hmm. of our um, okay. presentation. Some of us just play recordings. Um, like, for instance, I just had a musical excerpt attached to my PowerPoint and just played it uh, mm-hmm. when the opportunity arose. Mm-hmm. 
For those of you who are just tuning in, you are listening to a special episode of GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. This episode features three scholars from the Don Wright Faculty of Music who recently presented their music at the 19th Annual Western University Graduate Symposium on Music. GradCast hosts Tanya Nagpal and Roger Hudson are mid-interview with harpsichordist and musicologist Sonia Maurer-Das, whose research focuses on 18th century French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. Um, how do you manage being a artist as well as the research side? Um, I think, you know, I think it's actually a really, really nice balance. Um, I still perform a lot, um, even though I'm working mostly on an academic subject right now. Um, I find that it's it's really nice to have that balance and to kind of have this split, you know, aspect to your personality where you're performing on one side and being an artist and then doing an academic, really research-based thing on the other half. And I feel like it really feeds well into each other because being a performing musician who actually plays this music, it gives me an insight into um, what these musicians were thinking and or how this music was performed and what the context was from an actual practical basis. So yeah, I find that it's a really, really beneficial thing for me. I don't really find it difficult to to balance, balance it the two. yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's great to hear. Um, so if anybody wanted to learn more about some of the research that you're doing, what would be the best way to connect with you? I am um, listed on um, the Western uh, Music webpage under doctoral students. So if somebody was interested particularly in what I was doing, they could um, contact me through email there if they wanted to discuss it further. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And all of our listeners now know that Fancy Piano in Beauty and the Beast is not a piano. Correct. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. welcome our third guest. We have Rachel joining us. She's in the second year of her master's in music theory and she's actually joining us from her home country which is the United Kingdom. Uh, So we have a ton of questions for her. Welcome to the show Rachel. Hi. All right so we'll start with kind of what brought you here. Um, You did a one-year exchange program at the University of Ottawa before starting your master's here at Western. That's so right. Tell us a little bit about that exchange program. Yeah, so it was a year long and I did a mixture of courses, about half uh, musical and half non-musical, and it was a really great experience for me. It gave me the opportunity to gain a lot of confidence in areas of music I hadn't previously been as confident in academically, and it also is what inspired 
me to do a master's at all and to come back to Canada to pursue that master's. Mm-hmm. So tell us kind of what was that process like? To, so you were inspired from the exchange program and then you seeked Western because... Well, actually, I was um, specifically inspired by a professor, Professor Deneen. He was absolutely amazing. He suggested that I should do a master's. And um, I was explained to by a lot of people that um, over in North America, there's a lot more of a vigorous program for theory, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in the UK, you can't actually specifically do a music theory program. It's just general music or musicology. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I very much wanted to come back over here. So I applied to what I considered the top four schools. Mm-hmm. and Western gave me a great offer I couldn't refuse and I, yeah it was privileged to be able to come here. Awesome so now that you're here tell us about what you're researching here at Western. Um, so my current project is on the composer Gustav Holst and he was a composer um, in England uh, he was born in the late 19th century I think he died about 1936 um, he's most well known as the composer of the planets but also he did a lot of English folk song inspired works and he's also quite well known um, for composing the tune to the Christmas Carol in the bleak midwinter and the work I do um, goes a bit off the beaten track of what's normally you talked about with Holst. Um, I discovered just while browsing through his Wikipedia page that he did quite a lot of things that aren't ever talked about. He taught at a few girls' schools in London, and while he was there, he did a lot of um, things that would be considered feminist by today's standards. And this isn't something that's ever really talked about, so I really wanted to go forward with this. So um, one of the things he did is he would encourage his students to compose and at the time and even still today to an extent composition was considered a very masculine pursuit he also would get them to conduct and again today even there are very few female conductors that are succeeding because of the barriers they face because of their gender mm-hmm. and he would compose works for them he found um, to quote him that a lot of the works um, given to girls to play and perform was twaddle and so he would write and arrange music himself so that they'd get better musical education. Also at the time, um, girls were expected to sit at home playing pretty music on the piano, maybe the violin or singing at a stretch. But um, he disagreed that music should be an institution for finding a husband and instead would encourage girls to sing in the choir or play in the orchestra, including instruments which were normally considered inappropriate. For example, this may seem bizarre now, but woodwind instruments were not meant to be played by girls because it was considered inappropriate for them to make awkward facial contortions to play a woodwind instrument which is bizarre today considering how that's very much a female dominated field but sorry what would what would be an example of a woodwind instrument oh so the flute the oboe the bassoon and the clarinet also the saxophone um recorder Mm -hmm. and so yeah he would um create special parts in the orchestra so that the moment a girl could play two or three notes firmly they could join the orchestra on a woodwind instrument 
a lot of the work he did led to developments in the musical world um, for women. So the first, so there was an orchestra, the Queen's Hall Orchestra, and in the early 20th century, the conductor Henry Wood allowed in six string players on violin and viola. After that, the first um, woodwind player to be let in was um, Holst's own student, Helen Gaskell, on the oboe. And after that, she joined the BBC Symphony Orchestra, where she was the first female player non like altogether. Hmm. There had never been a female member, even on string instruments that had been um, actually considered acceptable. So to come in on an instrument which you wouldn't even usually be allowed to play was quite an achievement. I believe she stayed at the BBC Symphony Orchestra for about 30 years. Wow. Yeah. And so um, just out of curiosity, what drew you to analyzing his work? Was it was it his feminist views or his progressive, uh, I guess, um, initiatives that he took on at the time? Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of feminist um, analyses in music, and a lot of the time they kind of take the approach of what we call new musicology, which I've never quite felt comfortable with. For me, I've always liked looking at the notes and analysing what is there with the notes, what's happening, rather than talking, let's say, about the sociology or the philosophy of music. And so for me... A lot of the time, um, it would be difficult to find a reason to do a feminist analysis of work in opera. It often makes sense because there are female characters doing things that are really interesting from a gender studies perspective. But um, for me, this was really a route into doing feminist analysis in a way that I understood it. I could Mm -hmm. see that Holst had these really egalitarian views and that he would do a lot of things for his female students. I thought maybe we could look at his music and see if we can find some of these things in his works, find Mm -hmm. ways that he's doing things differently from the previous centuries and centuries of masculine-oriented music. mentioned earlier that even now a lot of composers it's still a more male dominated field um so in terms of do you see that changing can we see some of the amazing work that was done in the 19th century by this individual um providing lessons for now um i think that's a very difficult question um so at the moment i'd say we're definitely getting to a more 50 50 divide in terms of the gender of living composers maybe not quite 100% 50-50 if that makes sense but Mm. we're getting a lot closer but the problem is that a lot of the time we're playing works um, that are considered the classics and the classics are invariably by old dead white men Mm -hmm. and so as long as we keep only um, looking at that music, we're still going to have programs which are 99% male, even mm. if we occasionally add in older composers that were female, such as Chaminade or Clara Schumann, we've still got 99% male programs. Right. Now, you said that the um, composer that you're studying specifically, he was a big proponent of females using the woodwind instruments. Yeah. Uh, do you think that he was part of the reason or 
part of the process of getting such a, a large number of females or a big ratio today? Um, so I think that the change would have been made anyway, okay. but his students were definitely at the forefront of change. It was his students that were becoming the first female woodwind players. So perhaps if he had not been there doing that, it could have taken a few more years for it to happen. Okay. But I think it's very interesting that this guy who is basically only known for writing a handful of compositions, mm. like that um, he had this entire other side where he was a teacher and he really cared about his teaching and the things that he did in his teaching actually weren't just like limited to what was happening in one small school building that actually had changes in the musical world. think are the biggest factors holding back the, I guess, uh, bridging of equality today in terms of composers? You mentioned living composers are more nearing 50-50, but there's still a big gender gap within uh, different musical uh, fields. So what do you think are the biggest factors there? Um, I think the problem maybe even might be more prevalent in conducting. I think a lot of the inherent gender biases in society do keep the um, ratios of men to women at an undesirable level. For example, conducting is very much about leadership and a lot of people, like I've even seen many comments online of people saying they don't think women should conduct because they don't have like, let's say the gravitas mm. to um, make, to lead an orchestra. And what is a gravitas? I guess just the presence, the physical presence? Or? Yeah, so even just the ability to stand up in front of an orchestra and hmm. tell them what to do. And obviously hmm. this is not the case. There are many talented female conductors. For example, um, in the city where I did my undergraduate degree, um, it has the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, which is an amazing orchestra. And their current conductor is Mirga Grisant-Tyler. And she's a fabulous conductor. But a lot of the time women, they're going for all this training to become a conductor. And and then just not getting the opportunities they deserve or perhaps mm. they're being allowed to be a guest conductor but not the main conductor and also this puts off a lot of girls from pursuing like fields such as conducting because they're looking and they're just seeing a lot of white guys doing it and not many gaps for women to join the market and even in undergraduate degrees um, I think if you were to look at a lot of conducting classes they would be majority male because women mm. have been discouraged and it's just not something they really picture themselves doing because they're not seeing other people do it. Mm -hmm. And I think what you mentioned earlier the classics are male dominated and it's not necessarily because the female talent didn't exist but they weren't allowed to be um, composing at that level exactly. at that time. So I think the work that you're doing um, would you say it's really bringing to the forefront front uh, composers from the time that understood the importance of female leadership and female presence in music? Um, I think it, maybe my work is more localized. I wish I could say that mm -hmm. it had this <laughs> massive effect, but I think it can. it's very it's very much focusing just on one guy and what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think what he was doing was great. And it definitely had the um, the intention behind it. There was a, a very meaningful letter I found that Holst had written to the 
headmistress of one of the girls' schools he taught at. And in that letter, he asked if he could get Adrian Bolt, who was the conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, I believe, at the mm-hmm. time, to come and teach a conducting class for some of his old students. And the reason was that Holst didn't know a single woman who could conduct, and he thought it would be amazing if the St Paul's Girls' School students were the first conductors in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's very much localised, but it right. very much also was at the forefront of change and Mm -hmm. when these small changes were happening before the suffragettes had managed to win the vote, for example. Right, right. Well, ripples turn into waves, as they say, right? So we're on the right path, uh, hopefully at least. Yeah. And so you're also participating in the conference that's taking place at Western. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the conference. Um, So this morning I presented this paper on Holst um, I was partially talking about this background but also really going into some analysis of how we might look for the feminism in his music um, I played some musical examples and suggested narratives that we might find that go against the normal narratives found in music and also um, talking a lot about how his piece The St Paul Suite which he wrote for his students really goes against a lot of things that um would be expected of girls, for example, like delicate, gentle movements. And you have this piece with these almost gargantuan phrases where um, the girls are just doing absolutely crazy bow movements that would have been completely um, unseen previously. And how was the, uh, I guess, the response in terms of your presentation? Did you get some good questions or how's it going for you at the conference? Yeah, um, no, I got some really great feedback, but also um, some really interesting points that I hadn't thought of. For example, Mm -hmm. there's a scholar, Susan McClary, who I used but hadn't necessarily read very deeply. And I had an audience member suggest some really good ways that I could um, actually reframe my um, existing analysis to work even better without changing the analysis, but to fit in with the theory in a better way. Awesome. That's good to hear that you're still gaining something from the conference. Um, so your work sounds excellent. And like like Roger said, you know, the ripples are important and hopefully that's what leads to the waves. And we see that. If someone wanted to learn more about what you do, what would be the best way to reach out to you? 
I have a new Twitter account specifically for academia, so that would go. probably be That's the wonderful. best way. Yeah. I believe the hashtag, um, the handle is at Rachel Gain Music. So if you have any questions about the unseen side of host, feel free to get in touch. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. So uh, before we go for today, I, I have a really quick question because you're from the UK. Mm. Uh, have you ever visited London? England? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is perfect. See, because obviously Western universities here in London, Ontario, were notoriously known as the second best London year after year. I think it's got 150 years in a row or something now. It's a little generous. Do you you have any uh, comments on that claim? Are you enjoying London, Ontario relative to to your homeland? I love London, Ontario. I'm not going to lie. It's awesome. London, UK probably has a bit more going on, but I don't think it quite has like the local spirit that London, Ontario does. And I think there's a lot of great (laughs) people here who, um, I don't really want to insult my homeland, but maybe the people here are more agreeable. (laughs) Well, that's awesome to hear that you're enjoying it and you're very welcome to, uh, yeah, come back on the show at any point. We are just at the point of wrapping up for the day. So we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show, Rachel, as well as all of our guests uh, that have been on today to represent uh, WUGSUM 2018, the Western University Graduate Symposium on Music. My name is Roger Hudson. I'm joined by my co-host today, Tanya. And once again, uh, Rachel Gain. Uh, Thank you once again for being on the show. Um, You have been listening to a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, We are GradCast. If you'd like to get involved with the show at all, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com if you'd like to listen to any of our past or previous episodes you can go online to gradcast.ca have a wonderful week thank you so much bye bye